Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 14. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are coming to you live from Anaheim, California. Yes, we've taken you on vacation with us. We are here in Disneyland. It's our first trip out here. And I'll tell you, it's 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 quite an adjustment. And I don't I don't mean that in a bad way, but for anybody that's been to both parks, it's really very different. I knew going in it was gonna be different from Florida, but I was trying not to compare and contrast the two so much. I'm just enjoying this for what it is, and it's amazing. I think the big contrast between the two, the thing that's going to stand out most of all, is that it's warm here, but you don't have that humidity. Not that I ever care about that Florida humidity, but that's been a big difference so far, I think, for me. Yeah, I might actually get some pictures where my hair looks halfway decent in California. (laughs) Well, that and you don't do Splash Mountain and all the big ones. Yeah, this doesn't affect me. Yeah, so you're in good shape. Uh, don't forget that you can go to www.monorealradio.wixsite.com and you can get links to all of the films that we review direct to the Amazon video link. Amazon, a great partner of Monoreal Radio. And I don't want to waste too much more time. I kind of want to jump right into it because... We got a big sequel coming up. And I know that this is one that you and I are really excited about. We've been waiting six years, which is fine. Has it been that long already? 2012, the the, the first one came out. Oh my goodness. The film we're about to talk about, Wreck-It Ralph. But I will say, I'm not somebody that needs a sequel the next year. I don't need one a year later or two years later or three years later. Get it right. Just get the sequel right. I don't mind how long I have to wait. So this one, so far... Based on the trailers that we've seen, I mean, we've talked about it. I think this one's going to be worth the wait. I've been anxiously awaiting the sequel to this one because I do love Wreck-It Ralph. But these trailers have just put this anticipation over the top for me. Every time they have released something, it's just gotten funnier and funnier and funnier. Yeah, I remember when when the trailer came out for this movie, how excited we were because... I grew up with Nintendo. I know you had Nintendo. You had the Super Nintendo. Um, Super NES, and that's about where it stopped for me. Yeah, basically. I've I've had so many consoles, it's ridiculous. But I still have mine. Yeah, it still works pretty well. It's like 26 years old at this point. Yeah, mine's shot. My brother and I <laughs> played it until it died. Um, but I, I will say that I, I love... I had such an appreciation for this movie before I even saw it the first time because my brother and I, in spite of the fact that we had the consoles, we spent so many time, uh, so many afternoons and evenings in arcades. And I think that if you're a child of the 80s or 90s, that's what you did. You went to the arcade. You, there, you couldn't find a mall or a shopping center without an arcade. Oh, Disney absolutely knew what they were doing with this one. It was targeted right to our generation and... We went in hook, line, and sinker. Yes. So the movie starts with opening on Lit Wax Arcade. Um, specifically, it focuses on Fix-It Felix Jr. We find out that Ralph is a character in the game. His stump gets moved to build uh, an apartment building, which he wrecks out of spite. He lived in the stump, and now they've moved it away to put up this this housing. Fix-It Felix fixes the building with a magic hammer from his father. Now, this game is played in the style of the original Donkey Kong. Um 
with Donkey Kong and Mario. Um, it's an 8-bit game. It's an 8-bit game, exactly. It is meant to look like something that came out in the early 80s. When Felix fixes the building, he gets a medal. Uh, we find out that the game is 30 years old. Ralph says that his job is hard when nobody appreciates him because he's the villain in this game. Um, the arcade closes and the characters have uh, an after-work life. And part of that after-work life involves hanging out and being friendly, but Ralph has to live in the dump um, when everybody else gets to go out and have fun. He gets upset when Felix gets the praise, and he wonders what it's like to be the good guy. Uh, we find out that this monologue that Ralph has been giving is in Badenon. It's a villain support group. Uh, Ralph wants to be the good guy and tells everyone that he isn't going turbo, because they keep asking him, are you going turbo? And we don't know what that is just yet. The meeting ends, and they travel to Game Central Station, which is actually a surge protector on the floor. So they travel out of the game. In this case, they were in Pac-Man. They go through the power cable of the game and into the surge protector, which they've now turned into uh, kind of like a, a subway or a railroad terminal. Even in Game Central Station, they are afraid of the bad guys, and nobody wants to be around Ralph when he comes out. Uh, we find out uh, through a cameo from Sonic the Hedgehog, who's doing a PSA in Game Central Station, that if you die outside your game, you don't come back. You do not regenerate. Ralph comes back to his game to see that there's a 30th anniversary party that he was not invited to. Ralph lets himself into the building. He goes upstairs, and he's scaring everyone, but Felix invites him in for cake, which is met by a ton of opposition. Ralph gets into an argument with Gene, one of the characters from the game, because Gene does not want him there, um, and he declares that he will win a medal and come back, and Gene says if you can win a medal, you can not only come back, but you can also live in the penthouse. Ralph meets a soldier from Hero's Duty at Tapper, which is kind of like the local watering hole where all of these characters hang out, and Tapper was also another video game in the 80s. Uh, so Ralph steals his uniform and sneaks into his game, which happens to be a first-person shooter where you fight bugs. For those of you who are into 90s movies, think Starship Troopers. The game is incredibly scary and violent. Ralph has a freakout causing the player to be killed, and they move on to Fix-It Felix Jr. When she puts her quarter into the machine and the game starts, they find that Ralph is missing and the game appears to be broken. So she calls Mr. Litwack over and the game is put out of order and he says that if he can't get the repair that it needs he's calling somebody in tomorrow um, if they can't fix it um, in other words if Ralph doesn't come back to the game the game will be unplugged forever Qbert who we all know from the arcade um, he comes into the game and informs the characters of Fix-It Felix Jr. that Ralph has gone turbo uh, again we don't know exactly what that means just yet um flashback over to um, Hero's Duty and we see that Ralph is scaling the building and he gets the medal but this is only after Felix comes into Hero's Duty to explain that Ralph has snuck into the game. Ralph escapes the game uh, through an escape pod and he accidentally takes one of the cybugs with him and he crashes into another game called Sugar Rush which is a racing game. It's sort of like Mario Kart. Uh, upon ejection from the pod, Ralph's medal gets stuck on top of a candy tree, which he has to retrieve. 
as he's climbing the tree, we meet Vanellope von Schweetz, uh, a kid who pokes fun at Ralph before taking Ralph's medal, but not before one of those great Disney snatching grabs that we talk about so much. Uh, we see Vanellope glitch for the first time. And for anybody that's ever watched a video game glitch, it's something where the character or maybe a scene in the screen kind of flickers and then comes back. It's pixelated and then it comes back. Felix and Sergeant Calhoun, who happen to be, she's the lead character over at Hero's Duty, they follow Ralph into Sugar Rush to get him out and kill the Cybug. That's where we meet King Candy, who tells us that the first nine racers across the finish line uh, can race when the arcade reopens, but you need to pay to enter. So in other words, every day, the lineup of racers changes in Sugar Rush. And you pay to enter uh, your qualifying race, but to get coins, you have had to race before and won your gold medal, or your gold coin, I should say. Using Ralph's medal as a coin, Vanellope enters with her homemade car, which upsets the other racers. Ralph chases after her, destroying the stands in the process, because they have grandstands set up around the track. They bring an audience in to watch these qualifiers. Candy explains to Ralph that his medal is now code and he will not be able to get it back and orders him back to his game, but Ralph escapes to watch the racers destroy Vanellope's car. The two decide that Ralph will help her uh, get a new car and she will get his medal back when she wins. Meanwhile, Felix and Calhoun are walking around making small talk, and Felix explains to Calhoun what the phrase going turbo means, because Hero's Duty has only been plugged in for about a week, so they've never heard this term before. The, the story that we get is that back in the day, one of the big uh, arcade machines was called Turbo, and it was a racing game, and it was the most popular game in the arcade, and... You know, eventually they brought in another racing game, which took people away from playing Turbo. So Turbo, being the character of his own game, uh, decided that he was going to jump into the new racing game because he wanted to play in that one as well because he wanted to be the most popular attraction in the arcade. Well, when he showed up in the other game, it was assumed that there was a problem with the machine, so both machines were unplugged and both machines were gotten rid of. So Turbo inadvertently ended both games, and that's what the phrase going Turbo means. When you jump from your game into another. We also see that Felix is looking at Calhoun uh, as a romantic interest. Now, Ralph and Vanellope break into a bakery and they build a new cart for her since hers was destroyed. In reality, this is a mini game inside the video game. They're using it just to, to build themselves a new vehicle. Security sees them and calls for King Candy, who attempts to capture them, but they escape through a glitch, uh, and they enter directly into Diet Cola Mountain, where Vanellope lives, and we see Mentos falling into the cola, and we find out at that point that glitches can't leave the game. Now, we know what happens when you drop a Mentos into cola and you see the explosion. Um, Ralph decides he's going to help her train for her race, because now he's got a soft spot for her. King Candy retrieves Ralph's medal from the code, and he finds Ralph, and he tells him that if Vanellope races and the players see her glitch, there's a chance that the game will become unplugged. Now, she would be racing because if she races and finishes in that top nine, remember now, she's in the roster for the next day. Because she's a glitch, 
if they unplug the machine, she can't escape the game. She will die with the game. So Ralph, trying to save her, uh, destroys the car that they've just built, but not before Sourbill captures Fix-It Felix. Felix has gone back to King Candy's castle to try and find Ralph. Ralph returns home to find that everyone has left in anticipation of getting unplugged. Ralph sees Vanellope painted on the console across the way. In other words, he's looking out the penthouse window through the glass in the monitor, and he sees her painted on the side of her console. So he goes back to Sugar Rush, and he gets Sourbill to admit that King Candy tried to delete Vanellope's code, and then he locked up all of their memories, um, so they can't remember exactly who she is or why he did this. But if she races, and if she crosses, uh, crosses the finish line, the game re sets itself. They'll get their memories back and her code will be regained. Ralph breaks Felix and Vanellope out of captivity. Um, Vanellope's captured, but we don't actually see it happen. We're just told about it later. And they get her to the race. During the race, we see um, King Candy in a conflict with Vanellope. He goes to grab her. As he does, she glitches, which makes him glitch. And we see that King Candy is actually Turbo, the character from the game who left his game and jumped to the other. Before the race ends, the Cybugs unleash an attack on Sugar Rush. Uh, King Candy gets eaten and eventually becomes a Cybug himself. Ralph attempts to draw them into that Diet Cola explosion that we talked about earlier because we see in Hero's Duty that, like any other bug, they're drawn into light. So if he can create this explosion, he can draw them into the light and destroying them. Um... So he actually does do this by crashing through the Mentos, and right before he falls into the Diet Cola himself, Vanellope saves him. All the bugs, including King Candy, are drawn in and destroyed. Um, when that happens, Vanellope's code is restored, and we find out that she is actually a princess. That was her character in the game. Ralph and Felix return to their game. Uh, Felix marries... Calhoun, and Vanellope becomes a fan favorite in Sugar Rush and in the arcade. And that is the plot of Wreck-It Ralph. Um, I knew I was going to love this movie when it started, and we got the 8-bit Steamboat Willie. Yeah. I, I was hooked from that moment. It was amazing. The script for this movie is just so good. It's got snappy dialogue. The story itself is a lot of fun, but I think there, there's there's a lot going on here. And um, I think just the, the story that they molded all around is just absolutely phenomenal. Right. I mean... I think the story is what we all love about Toy Story so much. It is a little reminiscent of Toy Story in that it's what happens when the humans go away, what happens when their backs are turned. Um, but what I loved about this, I feel like it could have almost gone the route of Nightmare Before Christmas in that everything is compartmentalized into these different worlds and different games. Right. And had it followed Felix it kind of would have gone down that road even more if he's, you know, 
he's wanting more and he's looking to explore the other games. But I love that they t- took that idea and they flipped it on its head by focusing on the villain. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I just feel like most people are drawn into this movie, at least people in our age range, because watching this movie reminded me of going to the arcade as a kid because they use a lot of supporting characters from games that you played. So out of the gate, it's very familiar to you. Oh, this film is without a doubt a love letter to our generation. And that's what I loved immediately about it right after Steamboat Willie. Um, You know, it's not just all the cameos, but I feel like it really did such a great job of creating that nostalgia and capturing that era because, you know, we are millennials, but we are the last group before the cell phone generation. And I feel like it did such a good job of tapping into that era of like, yes, we did have video games and it was this new technology and it was very, very exciting. And when you were a kid, yeah, at times that was all you wanted to do. But we weren't addicted to video games the way that kids are addicted to phones now. Um, So I think they really did a good job of honing in on like the fun aspect of technology. Yeah, absolutely. And like so many things that they did, I just thought were so brilliant. Like the fact that they took a surge protector and they turned it into game central station I thought was just absolutely brilliant that yeah. you gave them this portal, you gave them this destination to go to and and that they could like they could go freely from game to game and as long as they were out before the arcade reopened it didn't cause a problem. Right. And I, I mean it looks like Grand Central Station. You know what it's supposed to be, but it I mean they could have picked anywhere or anything and it it just was those it's almost hard to talk about because the first 10 minutes of this movie, it's like sensory overload. There's just so much going on. There's so much nostalgia. There's so many recognizable characters and what they're doing and the way that you're hook, they're hooking you into this story is just brilliant. Yeah. I thought that using Tapper as the local watering hole was absolutely brilliant. Obviously they knew what they were doing, but things like that kind of, it kind of made it easy to develop that as the place to go, but it didn't feel cheap. Like, it, it can, you could say that they took the easy way out by doing that because Tapper's a bar scene. Where else would you have a local watering hole where you can hang out? Right. But they made it work so well that it doesn't come off as being cheap or being easy. Right. I mean, if you were going to have like a central meeting point for all of them like it could have happened anywhere in game central station if if a group of these characters just kind of ran into each other you kind of needed to give them another outlet and another setting otherwise it would have just been a little contrived if they were just running into each other and passing like that um but what I love too another gathering spot is in pac-man where they have this bad guys anonymous meeting which I I love the reveal that, I mean, obviously it's very unique that we are focused on the villain, but what you think is the monologue is actually his opening, hi, I'm Ralph, I'm a bad guy. Yeah. And it's hosted, this meeting is being moderated by Clyde from Pac-Man, and you see all these other... Bowser and Robotnik, it's... And people from Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat, and 
it's just so funny. I mean, like you, f- you love it right away because it's things that you recognize, but what they're doing is just so, so brilliant. I can't say it enough. Yeah. And, and it goes back to what I said before about it being so familiar. Like, for those of you who are of the age group, you grew up with these characters. So to see them, and the thing is though, you grew up with these characters seeing them as pure evil in these games. Right. To see them let their guard down and be like, I'm just playing a character. I'm not really that bad. And like showing that they had feelings and that they had emotion, but they're trying to justify their behavior because really it's just them playing a part in their game. Right. A lot of people don't like when you get backstory on these villains, but it just plays off as being so funny that it's just written so well and it's done so well that you can't help but laugh and love it. You don't feel like anything's being ruined by watching this. I think this is where most people would say it got quote unquote Disney-fied, but it's just so well done and it works for the story that they're telling here. It doesn't feel like it cheapens anything. No, not at all. And I'll tell you what, I really liked about this not that I ever minded at all but most of the time when you watch a Disney movie there's some sort of musical element involved Mm. could you imagine them trying to do this as a song and dance it would not work at all that would have killed it that would have cheapened it you're absolutely right so staying clear of that and kind of leaving their comfort zone a little bit was absolutely perfect in this case Although I do kind of want to hear Bowser sing now. No, I don't. <laughs> there are a few things in my life I don't need. That's one of them. Um, for me, at least, the Turbo Twist was great. I remember watching this movie the first time. I didn't see that twist coming. When they wrote this script and they wrote the story, they did a really good job of not burying the lead. Yeah, Um, I feel like once they started the race and you saw King Candy was out front, I think you kind of saw where it was going. But the way they actually did the reveal where he's glitching out too, so brilliant. Yeah, it was really, really well done. Um, And I thought that Ralph's quote-unquote sacrifice towards the end, it was sad because he's reciting that that um bad guy mantra yeah and i'm bad and that's, that's good something and i'm to never that gonna be good and that's bad there's no one i'd rather be but me yes yes and he's saying this as he's kind of looking into the abyss of this diet cola mountain it was a fantastic character arc for him yeah you know because he really is and it's not that what it, it's not that you don't sympathize for him Because he is upset that he has been labeled the bad guy and he doesn't get invited into anything and they do everything to avoid him when really he just wants to be a part of the gang. Mm -hmm. But at the root of him, most of this, uh, you know, most of this film, he is very selfish, not in a mean spirited way, but most of what he's doing and he's, re- he's causing havoc along the way, bringing the cybug in and getting the game put out of order. He just cares about getting his medal so that he can get vindication. So for this twist at the end, I thought was really well done in bringing him around full circle. Absolutely. 
you're right. That's a really interesting point to bring up because all he cares about is getting the medal, but it is for the greater good because he is trying to integrate himself with everyone. But the way that he goes about it, I think that kind of has to do with his his build. And we'll definitely talk more about, you know, the animation and, and how they brought him to life. But he's a huge dude. So aside from the fact that he's powerful and he wrecks things, he also kind of does it accidentally. And some of the things that he does in his pursuit of this medal, it's kind of haphazard. Um, but he's got a heart of gold. His intentions are always good. And that's why, you know, you believe him and you want to see him get what he wants. Right. Um, little things that I thought were really funny that I probably shouldn't laugh at as much as I do. But when you go to King Candy's castle and he's got the guards and they're Oreos, but they're singing Oreo, Oreo. Like, it's it's so funny. Like, I, I don't know how else to say it. I die laughing every time I see it. And I've been watching this movie for six years. I know it's coming, and it kills me every time. Oh, that is not wasted on me at all. It's a little uh, tribute to the Wizard of Oz when the uh, Winkies are going into the witch's castle. Surprisingly, though, I think that's what makes it so funny is because they went with Oreos and not Twinkies. But then you can't have a Twinkie chant. Exactly. Um, So I think in terms of just straight script and story, I think I've pretty much covered all of my bases, but I'm interested to see if you have any more notes that you wanted to talk about or any other talk topics in in regards to that that I missed. Um, just really the dialogue we haven't gotten into. I mean, the story and the script are brilliant, but this movie is so funny when you're not looking. Like, I mean, obviously... It, it is funny, but there are so many of these little quick lines. Um, like, for example, when Ralph comes back in from Game Central Station, he sees his parties going out without going on without him. Pac-Man is there and he goes on this tirade about Pac-Man and he calls him a dot muncher, amongst other things. <laughs> yeah. And so you just got to really be paying attention for stuff like that. Um, Vanellope, she's got these exclamations and she'll say sweet mother of monkey milk. Um, King Candy at one point goes milk my duds and it's I crack up every single time and pretty much everything that Felix and Calhoun say uh, played by Jack McBriar and Jane Lynch respectively everything that comes out of those characters is gold the thing with Jack McBriar especially is that he's the same person and he's the same character whether he's doing live action or animation. Yep. That's not to say he's one dimensional. It's just that he he's just so funny on his own. Yes. Whether he was whether you were watching him in Forgetting Sarah Marshall or um, Thirty Rock or Wreck It Ralph. Just the way that he inflects certain things, and he's he's got that oh gosh boy next door, yeah. <laughs> I'm too innocent for Aww, my own shucks. good. Yeah, like exactly. Aw shucks. And I think he knows exactly who he is, and it just lends so well to every single thing that he plays. You're absolutely right. It's not to say that he's a one dimensional actor, but like. I'm wondering if any of this was ad libbed at all because I will pay top dollar to get that footage of him just spitting these lines out. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, but you're right. It is like I said before. The dialogue is snappy and it is funny. And uh, you know the 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 dialogue back and forth between Ralph and Vanellope is really good. Just her insults that she throws at him, mm-hmm. like time and time again. They don't get old, and they actually get better as the movie goes on. Like, th- for all intents and purposes, that's something that by the end of the movie should have been completely beaten to death mm-hmm. and should have not been funny at all. But it got better every time she spoke to him. There is one thing, though, that I didn't love about the dialogue specifically between the two of them, and I am very surprised that Disney resorted to duty jokes. Because the game is hero's duty, and Vanellope just takes that and runs with it. Well, they're getting cheap laughs from the kids. And and you're also establishing her as a character with no filter that really doesn't care. And she's going to say exactly what's on her mind. Because Vanellope, w- without getting too much into her as a character, because we'll get there eventually, she is a child. Oh, yeah. And she's incredibly childish in so many ways. You know, she's kind of an interesting character. We'll save that for for a few minutes from now. But I I can see what you're saying. Uh, you know that Disney doesn't typically do stuff like that. And um, you know who actually uh, I think we we may have mentioned it when we did the review of the Muppets. But I know that Frank Oz took a shot at some of what Jason Siegel did because he thought that some of it was like cheap toilet humor, and he was like. The Muppets are too sophisticated for that. They'd never do that because it seems so out of character. Hmm. So in a way, I can see where it seems out of character for Disney to do this in this film. Yeah, I mean, maybe not when when you compare it to something like like Monsters, Inc., but like I guess because this so is in a way reminiscent of Toy Story to me, that's what I'm thinking of, and they would have never gone there. So yeah. that's where I'm kind of stuck on it a little bit. But other than that, I mean, what I think I love most about this film, aside from the nostalgia, is that it is just so incredibly creative. Um, let's talk about some of the animation a little bit. Um, what they did brilliantly here was create three different worlds. From three different eras, essentially. You know, you've got your 80s 8-bit animation. Right. You've got your 90s car racing game, which was probably one of the most popular things of the 90s. Oh, the racing games? Absolutely. They were all over the place. And now you... Cruising World and Cruising World Exotica. Yeah. You you couldn't go into an arcade without finding a racing game. Exactly. With the gear shift and all that. Crazy Taxi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... And then you've got your modern day first person shooter, which I will never understand, but that's okay. Um, And they just did such an amazing job of, uh, they just got everything right. I don't know how else to say it, is that they got the aesthetic, they got the gameplay, they just hit on everything so well. And it just makes me even more mad about a movie like Black Cauldron, which I'm already salty about, but I said it when we did the review, it felt like I was watching three different movies. Here, you've created three different worlds, and they are flawless. You have characters literally jumping from game to game to game, and they all look perfect. It's seamless. Now, the thing, too, that is impressive is that we've done it sometimes 
And people tend to do it in general when a movie is too on the nose. Sometimes people attack a movie for being too on the nose. Mm -hmm. And there are times where that's acceptable. This movie is incredibly on the nose. But given the world that they've created, it works. Right. Um, and you're right. It's They created three completely different situations, three completely different universes, but it doesn't at all feel disconnected. And I think maybe that's because um, they're all in the same arcade and because when the characters come out of the game the animation all looks the same because right. they toyed with the idea of keeping Ralph as an 8-bit character and Vanellope and those characters from Sugar Rush looking the way that they did and the characters from Heroes Duty looking the way that they did. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been inc- incredibly jarring though. Right. But they're so smart about the way that they do it because when, you know when you're jumping from game to game because they start on the outside of the arcade game and then you go in. So right. it's okay for Ralph and Felix to look 8-bit, obviously, on the screen. And then even when you flip inside the game, not even when they're in the surge protector or anything like that, then they get more fleshed out. But they still, like, they followed rules in each of those worlds. Like, when the uh, people of Niceland, when we see them, Niceland is in the world of uh, Fix-It Felix Jr. Right. It kind of looks like a, um, kind of like a New York City Central Park. It has that feel to it with this apartment building and the way that they're throwing parties and there's like this community within the apartment. Um, You know what it reminded me of actually? Dana Barrett's apartment building from Ghostbusters. <laughs> especially, of course they did. <laughs> especially when they throw that party. Okay, well, who yeah, brought the dog? <laughs> and the f- yeah, yeah, and the fireworks and the explosions and all that. Yeah, I totally see it. But it's an 80s apartment. That's that's what they're going for. And I mean, to their credit, I guess they nailed it if it reminds you of Ghostbusters. Yeah, in 1984. But um, what's really interesting to me is that where ralph and felix get rounded out the rest of the characters get rounded out as well once you're behind the screen so to speak uh they all kind of look like weebles a little bit just kind of teetering around but they have them on the same two-dimensional plane so even now that they're rounded out they still can't walk normally they still can't they have to do that like side that mario side shuffle because they're just moving along the screen the eight bit bop yeah. <laughs> now that should have been a song. Mm-hmm. Um, There's still time. And then to me, listen, if Baby Shark is a thing, oh god, I'm telling you, I can make eight bit bop. <laughs> um, Heroes Duty is great. That's its own world as well. And I think that they did such a great job of capturing everything that's in video games now. It's still, you know, when they literally crash into that game you're in the middle of this war zone and this is you know why i said i don't understand first person shooter i i can't like see it when you play a first person shooter i just a little overwhelming there's too much going on i can't control i i don't know it's just weird like it's not an intuitive thing to me but i feel like they did such a good job of of creating that confusion in this scene I remember one of the first 
first person shooters that I ever played. I was my my mom did not want me playing Doom. My uncle bought it for me. We played it for 5 minutes and she made him get rid of it. It was on Christmas. So, the only game that I not the only game, but the first game I remember playing where it was a real first person shooter um was the Jurassic Park game for Super NES. There are sections of that game when you go into some of the buildings and it becomes a first person shooter and you had like an electrified gun that you get you would shoot velociraptors with mm-hmm. and looking back on it now it's so incredibly primitive but it still freaked you out and it was very simple right but you're right now you go to these arcade games and like i've been playing video i'm 32 years old i've been playing video games since 1989 so i've been i've been playing for a long time and even now, some of the games I, I play, even on the PlayStation, it's like, I can't follow what's happening here. And they, they kind of go into it, and, and uh, Ralph has a throwaway line of, when did video games become so violent and scary? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, obviously, they're drawing attention to the fact that they've gotten, some of them have gotten really out of control. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm sensitive to anything. Like I said, I'm 32 years old. I can, I can play what I want. But <laughs> um, certainly, I do see where... You go into an arcade, especially now that they become, especially those first-person shooters, the consoles are so big that they become the focal point, and they kind yeah. of be- become the centerpiece. So it's hard for you to go to any arcade, not that there are a ton of them left, and I think the closest thing you have to a mainstream arcade would be like a Dave & Buster's. Probably, yeah. Even those are dying out. But you can't go to one of those things without seeing one of, like, the most violent, uh, out-of-control games. And I can see where parents don't necessarily want their kids to see that. Right. And you you contrast that with something so basic and innocent like a Fix-It Felix. You know, like I remember... I remember when the most violent game in the arcade was Street Fighter. Right. You know, Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat was the one that was like, wow, there's blood. Yeah. And that was, that was a shocking thing. Yeah. You know, when you see Scorpion throw a hook through a guy and yank him... 15 feet towards you and you decapitate them that was jarring to see but now it's considered to be so tame and i think that's part of what i love about about watching these three worlds that they've created is that they're paying a nice homage to not only the stuff that we grew up with Mm -hmm. but really the progression of video games as a whole like this you could tell that this was a passion piece for the people that made this movie. Oh, 100%. Because even in that scene in Hero's Duty, the first time they go in, Kaloon does call it out because Ralph is having a freak out. He thinks it's too violent. He has no idea what's going on, nor does he know how to control himself. And what they do so brilliantly is they have this little robot with a screen that acts as the first-person shooter. So that's what all of these game characters are seeing representing the game player and Ralph just like goes up to her and start, it's a little girl playing the game and he starts like shaking it and Kowloon was like no you never interfere with the first person shooter our job is to get them up to the the beacon right so that they can get their medal right um I love how they built Sugar Rush specifically and how they actually created a universe and a world using actual candy. It is so detailed, it could be its own 
film. Like, honestly, what it looks like to me is that after Tim Burton crashed and burned the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory franchise, that the Oompa Loompas got their act together and jumped over to Disney and built this world. Yeah, but I'm talking about, like, during R&D, the animators actually made models using real food. Right. Just to make sure that they could get it to look authentic. I, I just love that they did that. I do, too. I mean, I think you had to because we know even when they were doing hand-drawn animation, we've all seen like the behind-the-scenes clips of like how they did Beauty and the Beast or The Little Mermaid, and they made those sculptures. That way you knew what the rounded-out character was going to look like. I feel like a sculpture wouldn't have done this justice because with the candy, there's so much different texture you kind of had to use the real thing. Right, and colors and shapes, and you're trying to make it look authentic because it's very easy for you to go, that's how I think a pretzel window would look, mm-hmm. but you don't have any idea until you've done it for real. Right, but everything that they do in Sugar Rush, there's all these different, li- like there, there's licorice and Laffy Taffy in one part, there's peppermint trees in another, there's chocolate in another part, there's ice cream, but it all flows so well together. Yeah, Nesquik sand. Yes, yeah, everything, you know, it was just thought out so carefully. It wasn't just like, let's get some candy and throw it in here and make it look cool. Absolutely. It, You know, it didn't, it didn't look like Candyland the board game where they hit on like a few different types of, ca- I mean, they hit on every type of candy you've ever had, and they made it all work together. Well, that was the thing, too. You couldn't make it look like Candyland, the board game, because then no one would take it seriously, because right. then it would really look cheap. Right. You, 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 th- again, there's some times where things are too on the nose, mm-hmm. but in this case, it had to work that way. It had right. to be completely on the nose. Right. Um, yeah, I, I even just like the arcade, like the building itself. It just looks like an old 80s arcade. Or a pizza planet. Or a pizza planet. That's kind of what it reminded me of. What I love in, in, in that building is that they actually secured the rights to some real video games. Yeah. So they had the actual consoles for real games that you've played animated into the building. So again, it brings back that familiar. And I think I keep going back to, oh, it's familiar, oh, it's familiar, but... It had to be because you need to connect to these characters. It's like how they did it so well with Incredibles. You have to, especially when it comes to superhero movies, you have to get hooked immediately. I I look at this movie and I compare it to The Incredibles the way I would compare video games to comic books. It's something you grew up with. It's very easy for you to criticize something that you've never seen before because it's supposed to feel like something you've seen a million times. They sort of soften it and bring you in and make you feel comfortable because you know it. It's familiar. It's It's tangible. You've played it. You've felt it. You've seen it. And they have to get it right. And they have to get it right. Exactly. So there's a lot of appeal there for the nostalgic. That's a really good point. And they did, too, take it one step further because they got all the voice actors from the video games to do the voices in the movie. Like where you see the guys from Street Fighters and Mortal Kombat, those were the actual voice artists who who recorded the video games. Exactly. Um, I think now, unless you've got anything else, is a good time to actually start talking about some of these main characters like really delve into them absolutely starting obviously you got to start with ralph yeah well for all 
the four major players, Ralph, Felix, Vanellope, and uh, Calhoun, the voice actors, I want to hit on them a little bit because they, I, I think this is just perfect casting. Yeah, this without question was one of the strongest parts of the film because they brought these characters to life as well, if not better, than any other cast we've seen in an awfully long time. I think so. I think these characters are just completely embodied by the actors. I mean, they, they gave them so much life. This wasn't just a, a performance. I mean, you really, you you feel John C. Riley in, in Ralph. John C. Riley has had such an interesting career. Oh my God, yeah. Because he's, here's the thing. Most people know him from like Dewey Cox and Step Brothers and... Um, what was that NASCAR movie he did with Will Ferrell? Oh, um, I forget the name of it. The, uh, Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby, and a lot of the younger audience knows him as being the foil, as being the clown, as being clumsy, but because they, they don't re remember him from what was it, Steel Magnolias? I was gonna say that and Chicago, which won a Best Picture. And Perfect Storm, which I don't believe won anything, but I thought he was great in it. Yeah, like he's just, he can do a little bit of everything. Yeah. And it, he's hes so strong as an actor. And on his own, the rest of the cast is really, really good. But they could have all just been supporting actors with a few throwaway lines. And I feel like he was strong enough where he could carry this film by himself. Yeah, which was really important too, because Ralph is such a complex character and he's got to walk the line between being this tough guy who's it sometimes sarcastic to developing this relationship where he's a softy with a child and still, you know, navigating his way through everything, working with people that don't necessarily like him that he's never gotten along with. Um, and they just did such an amazing job. I mean, when you break it down, Ralph aesthetically kind of looks like Donkey Kong. Yeah. He's a huge dude. He's got those big gorilla arms. And he's, you know, he's meant to break everything. Well, originally that character was developed as a gorilla. Right. Yeah. They did have him as an actual, as an animal. But I, I just, I think it would have looked ridiculous. And it would have never worked if he is the only animal amongst all of these humans, essentially. And at, and you would have just called it a cheap ripoff of Donkey Kong. You would sure. have been like, oh, it's Donkey Kong. Sure. I mean, you kind of feel that way to begin with, but it doesn't feel so cheated because he's a, cause he's a human being. Right. Um, I immediately get hooked in from his, his Bad Guys Anonymous uh, monologue. And then I love his first scene when he walks into Game Central Station where he gets, quote unquote, randomly searched by a security guard. And security asks him, he's like, who are you? And he's like, Lara Croft. He's just so sarcastic and he plays that off so well. And then, you know, by the time he's got his character arc and he comes full circle, he's just this giant softy. And like you said, he's he's willing to sacrifice himself. And we, when, he, when you meet him, you think he's kind of mean. Right. And that's that's why you need an actor like John C. Riley, right. who who can 
who understands how he needs to play the character, but also has the ability to make good on it, has the ability to deliver on it and make him the complex character that he is. Exactly. He is, I mean, by far one-dimensional. Um, and I said it before, Jack McBriar is just Jack McBriar, but he makes Felix so endearing that I really can't see anyone else playing that character. Right. And there are times, too, where you really understand Ralph's point of view, where you almost do find Felix annoying. And he kind of gives him that quality, too, where he's just always the good guy and always getting all these accolades. And it's not that he expects them, but it's just like, oh, come on, this guy again. Yeah, but it doesn't get old. No, no, never. And he, and he, he toes the line, but he never actually crosses the line into becoming annoying or, exactly. or too over the top. That's the thing. He's over the top, but in all the right ways. Yeah, there's no point where I dislike him, but there are times where like he just plays it so well where like you feel Ralph's rage of like just wanting to smack him. Right. Um, Vanellope, I... I'll come out and say I've never really been the biggest Sarah Silverman fan. Yeah, I've never really found her to be that funny. She's, she's just an acquired not my, taste. She's just not my type of comedy. You know, like we we watch comedy on TV and and on Netflix. Like our favorite is John Mulaney. Yes. You know, like John Mulaney is my type of guy. Um, you want to talk about nostalgia? Yeah, big time. Like, Go find New in Town on Netflix if you want to laugh. Yeah. Like, he's a guy that I would love to see eventually get a role in a Disney film oh, because wow. I could. I think he could actually. I don't know what that character is right now. That character <laughs> might not come for a while, but if they could find a character for Jack McBriar, they can find one for. They John can Mulaney. find one for John Mulaney. Sure, but that's my type of per- the guy. That's he's going to be quick witted and snappy, but tell a good story. Right, Sarah Silverman. I've just never. Like you said, she's an acquired taste, but I've never really acquired it. The first time I truly found her funny was the Matt Damon, Ben Affleck videos. Yeah, with Kimmel. Yes, which I can't say the full name of. Right. But I mean, part of it is funny. But is it funny because of her? Or is it funny, funny because, because of, of Affleck them? and Damon? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't. She, she, she's just a character in it. Really, it's them that makes it funny. With that being said, though. I think she's the most perfect Vanellope. That's exactly right. As 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 I'm not a huge fan of hers, this like is this makes char- me love her. Yeah, this is another character that I don't think could have been played this way by anyone else. Right. And when I heard that it was Sarah Silverman that was doing it, and it was that was the only part of the trailer. Like you're copying me. Like, I was just like, <laughs> I'm yeah. gonna hate this kid. It was the only part of the trailer that I was kind of like, I'm not really excited to see you, but I'm happy to see the rest of it. As the movie got on, I learned to love her more and more and more. Right. And by the end, I was just like, I love Vanellope. And it's not just because she's like this starry-eyed, adorable little girl. A lot of it is just the things that she's saying and and... Sarah Silverman really gave her like an innocence. She became the character. Yeah. She did it so well. I mean, I 
obviously it's going to sound stupid when you say she gave her her voice. Of course, it's a voiceover. Right. But right. she really did give her a voice. Yes. And she gave her, um, similar to, similar to Ralph, she gave her an appeal because mm. she's relatable. You know, everybody has, everybody has been that dreamer. It was, they've wanted something more. They've wanted something better. And maybe they got stuck in a rut and they're not really satisfi- satisfied with their stagnant job or their stagnant life or their stagnant house. And they're, they're looking for the next big thing. They're looking to grab that brass ring mm-hmm. because they want, they want what they believe they deserve and what they think they should be doing. Not just doing what you say they should do. Right. And she's very relatable in that way because we've all been there. And Sarah Silverman does such a good job bringing that character to life. And in spite of her being an animated character on screen and being something of fiction, she humanized her. Yeah. And did a really nice job with her. Yeah. I love Vanellope's look too. Just the aesthetic of the character because... All of the other people that are in Sugar Rush that she's racing against, they're all these kind of, it's almost like a mean girls thing or a mean girls relationship, the way that they're treating her. She's definitely an outcast and all of these. And Mindy Kaling was was in this too. Yes, yes, she is one of them. Taffeta. Yes. Um, But that's it. Taffeta and the rest of her gang, let's Candlehead say. Candlehead and Yeah, they all are clearly from a certain world in Sugar. Like one of them is all like chocolate Reese's peanut butter cups. Taffeta is obviously taffy. She's very, you know, like fluffy and her dress is all tulle and things like that. But Vanellope, you can't really pinpoint where she's supposed to be from or what kind of candy she's representing because she's just a little all over the place. She's got all these sprinkles in her hair, but I thought that that was such a subtle, amazing touch to give to the character because, you know, she is she is like this sweet little girl, but like, you know, she doesn't really have a home and it kind of gives her this, I don't want to say orphan-like quality, because you don't really get that from the sprinkles, but she is for all intents and purposes because she's a kid and she's completely out on her own. But like it kind of gives her like um, she's kind of like a ragamuffin a little bit. Yeah. And it fits because they keep calling her the glitch, the glitch. You're not supposed to exist in this game. So she looks completely scattered. Right. She looks like she doesn't belong. She looks like something that was just thrown together accidentally. Exactly. With but no it's real rhyme so or reason. Cohesive. And they just did such a great job with that in, in her details. Yeah. And I think that just the way they played with colors and they made her fit that, that entire realm of sugar rush is really well done. And Jane Lynch is really good in everything that she does. She's kind of similar to that Jack McBride. In Though I will say, I hate to say, I think Jane Lynch is kind of one-dimensional because she's the same thing every time you see her. But she's perfect But she's this. perfect. She's perfect in this movie. What I like about her specifically is the way that she delivers certain lines. And I'm, I'm talking about in-game dialogue. Yes. Like, shoot the eggs before they hatch. Like, it's like, I can hear, I can hear like Peppy in Star Fox. You know what I'm saying? Like, she sounds like she's delivered, I mean, and obviously she is, but she sounds convincing as a video game character, like delivering lines in a video game. Yes, she's got that, 
drill sergeant quality, not just in the video game lines, but in the character itself. You know she's just going to be the boss. Yeah, like I just hear, do a barrel roll from Nintendo 64. (laughs) But it also works uh, with her, you know, eventually her and Felix become love interests, but you can tell she's wearing the pants in that relationship. Anybody who's going to marry Felix is going to be wearing the pants in that relationship. (laughs) Without question. But yeah, r- uh, perfect casting. She does a nice job bringing the character to life and and, and making her... She's, she's so over the top that she is funny. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that... Um, I mean, I'm not going to say she's the only person that could have played that character. There are other people that definitely could have. She just did it really well. Yeah. And I think that... Uh, I'm I'm interested to see if they bring her back in the next one and what exactly her role would be, if at all. You know, I'm curious to see, and I don't know if they would do that in this world. Like, you know, obviously she marries Felix. I'm I'm curious to see if they go completely the other way with her and if they have a kid and if that's where they're at right now in their relationship because we're at six years later, possibly. You know what we didn't talk about with Vanellope? Um but we should touch on it now before we move on here. Um, she is the anti-princess. It just suits her so well. Because when we find out towards the end of the film that she is a princess and they put her in the princess outfit, mm. she glitches out of it to go back to the way that she looked. And she's like, this is the real me. And they, we know from the trailers that she's going to get introduced to the princesses of the Disney universe. Right. And she is the anti-princess. Well, she says it. She says, I'm not a princess. I'm a racer. But that's where I think it's, it's such a great line for the character. Mm. And I think it further proves that she is what she is and she doesn't care what anybody has to say about her, which has kind of been her mantra the whole time. But I'm really, really intrigued to see how they carry that over and what effect this has on actual Disney princesses. Like, I want to see Elsa and Ariel and Belle and Vanellope. I mean, I know we're going to see it, but I can't wait to see what that interaction is. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I haven't been this excited for a sequel in a long time. I I'm, I was more excited for this than, and the re- Incredibles. than The Incredibles. Yeah, and we waited twice as long for Incredibles. Right, and Incredibles 2 is really good. I mean, really good, but... Um, this is the one that for me has been the one that I've been waiting for for so long. Like Frozen 2, cool. I'll watch it. I'm interested because I love Frozen. Incredibles 2, awesome. Love Incredibles. Can't wait to see it. I'd really like to see a Meet the Robinson sequel, but I don't think we're going to get it. Um, But this is one that I've just been, I've been on the edge of my seat with every trailer Every drop, every teaser, waiting. And I cannot wait to see this. This movie just fires on all cylinders. And I think we're going to see that again because it's everything. You had a great story. It's so incredibly creative. And it's just so well done from the characters to the nostalgia factor to the details we didn't this movie is so detailed i feel like we almost glossed over it you know we we talked about it with the characters a lot but like 
and and with the settings of these different worlds and how they created such complete worlds within these three different video games. But even just right down to Game Central Station, I don't know if you noticed this, they had, um, you know, when you go through, it's the socket that gets you back into your video <clears throat> game. Yeah. And they're all outlined in like a like a gold or a something metallic like you would see in the real Grand Central Station. Right. But it's scuffed. They have scuff mark. You can see it when Ralph is getting interrogated by the security guard, and it's it's just things like that that put this movie over the top. Yeah, I I don't think we need to launch into how the attention to detail. I know you think that we kind of glossed over it, but I think we we gushed on about the development of the arcade and the 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 time that they took and how careful they were in developing the actual games and the characters and especially developing the setting that Sugar Rush. I don't think we glossed over it at all, but that's the thing. We've gone on for over an hour now about this movie, and we can still talk about it. Like you, you almost can't run out of things to say in terms of the detail, which is why this movie is so perfect. It's got great characters. It's got laughs. It has heart. It has a great story. The visuals are outstanding. The villain is great. The conflict, the twist, it's all amazing Circling back around to what I said before, considering this is not one of the Disney musicals. It doesn't right. have great musical numbers and great songs. Like It doesn't have like the Sherman Brothers song or the Lopez song to lean back on. Right. Or, you know, to, to say, oh, wow, this really puts it over the top. The fact that it could do it and sort of be a non-conventional Disney film really is a credit to the writers, the directors, and the actors of this film. Right. And the animators. You can't forget about them either. Well, you you just said it. You used the word perfect. You know, we said that except for those few little contradictory, contradictory places of dialogue in Coco, that would have been the perfect film. I have nothing for this. This is the first thing we've gotten through, and even Little Mermaid being my favorite movie, where I have no criticism whatsoever. Right. I think this so far has probably been... Maybe not the only flawless movie, but it's it's one of the only ones we've discussed so if far. If my only complaint is that you resorted to duty jokes, that's really not a bad thing. No, in, not in the grand scheme of things, not at all. Um, so, you know, look, we, we would love to sit here and continue to talk about this film, but I'm literally looking out the window of our hotel right now at Disneyland and DCA and the sun is out and I really don't want to sit in this room anymore. We love doing this podcast. We love our listeners, but we also love Disney. So we got to go. Yeah, we got to go. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. We we're happy to take you on the road with us. Um, we will be back next week. Um, in preparation of Disney uh, Mickey Mouse's uh, 90th birthday, we're going to talk about some of the early Mickey Mouse films. Um, and we're also going to do a recap of our first trip to Disneyland. Um, going to break the format just a little bit um, because I think it's important, us being first timers out at Disneyland, to share the experience because I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there similar to us that call Walt Disney World their home resort. But we're going to tell you exactly what you can expect and why we think it would be it's you owe it to yourself to come out here for so many reasons we're gonna save that for
for when we come back next week. And we're going to talk in depth about the Disney studio. Um, Jackie only stopped crying so that we could do this <laughs> podcast. She cried through her churro. She cried through she cried through Pirates of the Caribbean. She cried through Blue Bayou. I'm having a wonderful time. Yes. Don't get me I mean, she's cried for a week, but she's having a lovely time. <laughs> Oh, and I, I get myself I, together. Yeah, and I, I just can't wait to to explain and, and to go over that and to review it. And we, I, we would be remiss if we didn't thank D23 for setting this up. And for, for the Disney cast members that were there and that walked us through and gave us the tour. And for Disney for being so inviting to us while we were there. Yes, this has been magical. And... We might have a little gift for one of our listeners from the studio. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Guess you got to come back next week if you want to hear more about that. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Monoreal Radio. Um, and again, if you need to catch up on any of the films that we have spoken about and reviewed, up to and including Wreck It Ralph, www.monorealradio.wixsite.com/slash home. Links to the Amazon instant uh, instant video links. Um, a great partner of, of ours. We thank you so much. Amazon for for being friends with us <laughs> and for helping us and for for giving our listeners a place where they can go and watch these films. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies. The stuff dreams are made of.